fellowship is participation, it is partnership, it's the new shared relationship that you and I as believers entered into when we came to salvation. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled The Apostles' Proclamation. Is it possible to have full confidence and assurance of salvation? We're looking at the Apostle John's first letter, discovering more about the magnificent gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Tom will begin looking at a third element of the Apostles' Proclamation, its purpose. Tom will show you what it means to fully know if you're in the faith or not. The Apostle John wants you to know the full assurance of eternal security, an assurance not only of security, but one of fellowship as well, with God and also His people. Let's join our teacher now to discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Today we finish the prologue of 1 John. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1, and I'll read the prologue, verses 1 to 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, we've already discovered the basic thrust of this paragraph is this. The ultimate foundation of our fellowship with God, of our assurance of eternal life, and of our joy, the ultimate foundation of all of those things is the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. In other words, everything we have spiritually rests on that proclamation. Now, Admittedly, this is a difficult paragraph. Let me just remind you of how it's structured. The paragraph consists of two sentences. The second sentence is easy. It's verse 4, very simple, straightforward. We'll see it later this morning. But verses 1 to 3 is a long, difficult sentence. Now, the subject and verb of that sentence doesn't come until verse 3. We proclaim. That's the main idea. We proclaim. But what exactly did the apostles proclaim? Well, the direct object of the verb proclaim is back in verse 1, the four phrases there. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. That's what they are proclaiming. Now, the last phrase in verse 1 identifies the one that those four phrases describe, the person who is at the center of the apostles' proclamation. Notice what he says at the end of verse 1, their message was concerning or about the word of life. Verse 2, you'll notice in our translation, is separated from the flow of thought by two M dashes. That means it's parenthetical. 
Verse 2 is simply explaining how it was that the 12 apostles came to hear and to see, to look at, and to touch the Son of God. How did that happen? It was through the incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh. Now, verses 3 and 4 go on to explain the reasons for the apostles' proclamation and the reasons for John's letter. So, To put that all together, we've observed that the prologue really points out three key features of the Apostles' Proclamation. We've already looked at two of them. Let me just remind you. So far, we have examined the focus of their proclamation. I'm not going to go back through this and explain it. Let me just list them for you. In the first three verses, there is so much revealed about the focus of their message, the person of Jesus Christ. In the first three verses, John explains several crucial truths about Jesus our Lord. He existed eternally. He is truly human. He is God's self-expression. He himself is self-existent, but he gives life to everything and everyone. He was manifested in human flesh, and yet he was eternally with God. He is Jesus of Nazareth, and he, as far as his mission, is the promised Messiah and Savior. All of that we found and discovered as these first three verses unfold. Now, last time, we went back through those three verses to see the other thread that weaves through them, and that is the integrity of the apostles' proclamation. You can trust what they have written and what they have said. Why? Because they were reporting historical events real things that happened, and they were firsthand eyewitnesses of those events. But more than that, they were official witnesses. They didn't just see it by accident. Jesus picked them to be witnesses of his life, of what he taught and what he did. But more than just official witnesses, they were even Jesus' legal representatives. They are the sent ones, the apostles, the legal proxies for Jesus. They had, if you would, in modern vernacular, power of attorney for Jesus to act on his behalf. And so you can believe the focus of their message because of the integrity of their message. Now that brings us today to a third feature of their message, and that is the purpose of the Apostles' Proclamation, the purpose of the Apostles' Proclamation. We see it in verses 3 and 4. John writes this letter, he tells us here, with two basic purposes in mind, and they are the same purposes behind the Apostles' Proclamation as well. So let's look at the purpose of this letter and the purpose of their message. The first purpose here is the assurance of our fellowship the assurance of our fellowship. Now, you remember verse 2 is an interruption. It's a parenthetical thought. So he begins verse 3 by picking up where he left off in verse 1. So you kind of have to ignore verse 2, and he recaptures what he said in verse 1 this way at the beginning of verse 3, what we have seen and heard. That's kind of a summary of what's said in verse 1. What we have seen and heard... That, he says in verse 3, is what we proclaim. There's our subject and verb, what we proclaim to you also. Having said that, then, he introduces the first purpose for writing. Notice those two little words, so that. 
We are proclaiming this message to you also so that, here's the purpose, you too may have fellowship. Now obviously, fellowship is the key word here, and so we're going to have to define that word. But before we define it, let's step back, as I often like to do, and make sure we know what fellowship is not, what it's not, because there is a whole lot of clutter in most Christians' thinking about what fellowship in the New Testament sense is. Let me say to you, it is not a mystical experience. It is not an emotional awareness, a a kind of feeling of God's presence, a, a sense of he's with me. That's not what fellowship's describing. How do I know that? Well, remember in verse three, he not only says we have fellowship with God, but he says we have fellowship with him and the other apostles and with other believers. Now, is your fellowship with other believers some sort of mystical, emotional experience? No, obviously not. The nature of our fellowship with God and Jesus Christ in verse 3 is of the same nature as our fellowship with John, the apostles, and all other believers. All believers, without exception, already have fellowship with God regardless of how they feel or the intensity of their experience. So it's so important to sort of unroot all of the unbiblical ideas about the nature of our fellowship with God from our minds. How did these these sort of ideas of, of mystical, experiential relationship in sort of a, a, a mushy way, where did that come from? I mean, I, I suspect every person in this room has been influenced by this concept, this idea. Where did it come from? Well, about 150 years ago, a movement was born in Christianity called the Higher or Deeper Life Movement. And as I said, most of us have been exposed to it. I was shortly after I was converted in the 1970s. I was introduced to books that promoted this deeper life, higher life, those are both ways it's referred to. And the idea was there were two basic concepts in this movement. One was that sanctification wasn't this gradual progressive thing, it was instead an experience you had, a kind of second work of grace that catapulted you from defeat spiritually to the victorious life. And if you could just get the secret to unlock the door, you could be victorious like the people who were writing the books. This is, this is promoted in books written by Watchman Nee, by Witness Lee. I read books about abiding in Christ that were all about seeking a feeling or a sense of communion with God. Now, along with that flawed view of sanctification, and by the way, let me just say, that is a lie. The idea that you're going you're gonna to wake up one day and have this experience that's going to rocket you to some high level of Christian experience and victory, it is a lie. The the truth is, spiritual growth is exactly like physical growth. It is long and painful. That's the reality. I hate to tell you that, but get used to it. So throw away all the books that promise you some catapult to new heights of spiritual victory. It doesn't work that way, just like it doesn't work that way physically. But along with that flawed view of sanctification, the, the higher or deeper life movement also came with a feeling-oriented, 
experiential version of Christianity. It taught that, that the, those who were really spiritual, you know, if you were just nominally spiritual, you knew the Bible, you studied the Bible, and yeah, that's important, of course, but if you're really spiritual, you, you feel God. You have this, this sense of God's presence, and, and you live every day in the sense of God's presence. Let me just tell you, that is spiritually destructive because it's driven by emotion, and it will only be as good as your emotions happen to be that day, as good as your night's sleep, as good as the other issues in your life. It's completely destructive to understanding how spiritual growth works. That is not what John means by fellowship. He's not talking about some experiential, feeling, emotion-driven sense of God. It's not primarily something subjective that you feel. It's something objective that's real, whether you feel it or not. So, having sort of cleared the decks of those bad ideas, and, and I do hope you'll listen carefully, because if you bought into that, if you're influenced even a little by that concept, it's destructive to your Christian life. I can tell you by experience. So let's talk about what this really is, what fellowship is. Well, the Greek word, I think most of you know, that's translated fellowship here is koinonia. It comes from another Greek word, koinos. Koinos simply means common. In fact, we talk about the New Testament written in Koine Greek, meaning everyday Greek, common Greek, marketplace Greek, as opposed to some academic level of Greek. Common. So it came to refer then to things held in common, like the common ownership of a business or the common property of a married couple. So it, it has to do then with this, this common ownership or common property. In fact, in Luke 5 verse 10, we read this, James and John, the disciples of Jesus, were partners in the fishing business with Simon. The word partners is koinos. They had it in common. So here's how the leading Greek lexicon defines this word koinonia, or fellowship as it's translated in our text. Quote, listen to this, close association involving mutual interests and sharing close relationship. Let me read that again. Close association involving mutual interests and sharing close relationship. So folks, fellowship is participation, it is partnership, or often a great way to translate it is relationship. It's the new shared relationship that you and I as believers entered into when we came to salvation. But what is the nature of that relationship, that fellowship? Well, there are two parts of it. First of all, at salvation, all Christians became children of God. That's the first part of this new relationship. The moment you trusted in Christ, the moment God changed your heart and you trusted in Christ as a result of that, you became a child of God. So did all the people sitting around you who came to Christ. Turn to chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we, all believers, all true believers, would be called children of God, and such we are. 
For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. You are a child of God if you believe. Now, just to show you the contrast, go down to verse 10 of chapter 3. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Now, what does that tell us? We were all born as children of the devil. Everybody in this room is a child of the devil or you're a child of God. That's it. There are no other categories. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, verse 44, to the the spiritual leaders of Israel, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Well, it's not just them. Anybody who is not a child of God is a child of the devil. But we who have believed, we who have been born again, we are children of God. That's the new relationship we enjoy. And understand this, at the moment of your salvation, you became part of that fellowship. You belong to that group. Another thing happened at salvation, though. It's related, but slightly different. All Christians, at the moment of salvation, became our brothers and sisters. So not only did you become a child of God, but this wasn't like a personal thing just between you and God. It's not like only you are God's child. You also became brothers and sisters to the people who are believing in Christ as well. Turn to chapter 3. Go down a little further to chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we, what? Love the brethren. Who are the brothers? That's a generic Greek term for brothers and sisters. Who are they? Well, back to verse 10. They're the children of God. They're the people who are God's children with us as opposed to the children of the devil. We now have brothers and sisters. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He goes on to say, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Go over to chapter 5, verse 1. I wish I had time to really sort this verse out. We will when we get there, but there's so much rich theology here. But he says this in chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah... In other words, he came on the saving purpose from God to redeem a people for himself. Whoever believes that, literally, the Greek text says, has been born of God, which, by the way, teaches that the new birth precedes faith. You can't believe the gospel until God gives you the capacity to believe. And he's saying, those who have been born of God, they believe. But he goes on to say this in the second half of verse 1, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Not talking about Christ. He's talking about Christians who have come to love the Father. If you are a child of God and you love the Father, guess what? You're going to love his other children. That's what it's saying. You're going to love his other children. You have this new relationship. So go back to 1 John 1 then. In 1 John 1, to have fellowship is not mystical. It's not something touchy-feely. It's not something mushy. It is to know the reality of, to have confidence in, and to enjoy the benefits of these new relationships with God as Father and with the rest of the people who have God as Father as brothers and sisters. So our new fellowship then has two expressions. We, first of all, have fellowship or relationship with the apostles and all believers with the apostles and all believers. Notice verse 3. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship. 
With whom? With us. With us. Burdick, one commentator on 1 John, writes this, 1 John describes a fellowship based on a common faith in the incarnate Son of God. Because of that faith held in common, believers are participants in a common interpersonal relationship with one another. Do you understand that the day you became a Christian, you entered into the fellowship, the fellowship of everyone else who knows and follows Jesus Christ? It's not mystical. It's just true. It's a reality. You're in the fellowship. When we believe the witness of Jesus' official witnesses, and when we believe those who are his legal representatives, who have his power of attorney, the apostles whom he chose, we enter into the same fellowship or the same relationship that the apostles enjoyed with each other and with other believers in the first century. You're in the fellowship. If we pass the tests in this letter, and we really are Christians, then we belong to the body of Christ just as surely as the apostles did. And we belong to Christ just as they did. Let me show you this. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. When we were looking at the introduction to this letter, I pointed this verse out. It's a crucial verse because it's talking about the fact that there were those who had been attached to the churches John wrote to, who had listened to the heretics, listened to the false teachers, and had believed and had left the churches. And he says this in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not, they all are not of us. Listen, do you see that expression again and again? Of us, of us, of us. What's he talking about? The fellowship. They don't belong to the fellowship like all true believers belong to the fellowship. We are united. Every true believer is united with the true church as a member of Christ's body. That's why in Acts chapter 2, you remember after Paul's message at Pentecost, those who believed, Acts 2.41, were baptized and were added, what, to the church. In other words, they're in the fellowship. And what's interesting is the very next verse is sometimes misquoted. Acts 2.42 says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and unfortunately, our, our translation leaves out the definite article. Literally, what it says is, they were devoting themselves to the fellowship, not to coffee and donuts. They were, nothing wrong with coffee and donuts, by the way, let me just say, I'm all for it. They should be everywhere Christians get together, but that's, that's not what this is saying. It's the fellowship, it's, it's part of the group. It's to be, to have a shared relationship, a, a partnership, an association because of who we know, we're in the fellowship. At salvation, we enter fellowship with all believers just as truly as we enter fellowship with God. By the way, this is such a powerful rebuke to pop Christianity that focuses almost entirely on your personal relationship to God. Yes, if you're a believer, you have a personal relationship to God. We're going to get there in a moment. But it's not in isolation from the rest of his children. We saw it in chapter 5, verse 1. If you love the Father, guess what? You love his other children. The, the New Testament knows nothing of believers who have no sense of belonging to or obligation to the church and the larger body of Christ. The New Testament knows nothing of a genuine believer unattached and uninvolved in 
a local body of believers. Listen, if you are a Christian nomad who just wanders into a building like this and get, gets what you want and you leave and you have no responsibility, no obligation to minister to the rest of these people, you are sinning against Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in this book, you may not be a Christian at all because true Christians who love the Father love his other children. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series, The Apostle's Proclamation. Tom will have part six for you on our next program. Do join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.